Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Oxford Martin School. Uh, my name is Charles Godfrey. I want to do nothing more than to welcome you to this building, the wonderful old India Institute, and say what the Martin School does is we, we um, bring together programs which tend to be interdisciplinary, looking at major problems of the 21st centuries. And one of the programs we're most proud of is on African governance. And I'll say nothing more but pass on to Stefan Durkin. Just, just say a few words. So the African Governance Program here, based at the uh, Oxford Martin School, it's co-led by Ricardo Suarez de Oliveira, who will convene, who will moderate uh, the panel today, and myself, so Stefan Durkan. So it's actually meant to bring different disciplines, especially more from economics and politics, together to actually study issues to do with Africa and its governance. And uh, of course, the topic of today really matters a lot in the way economics and politics comes together. So it's uh, very opportune to to have a panel like this. Thank you. Thank you, Stefan. Uh, a warm, wel a warm welcome uh, to all uh, in person here at the, the Martin School in Oxford, and also for those of you joining us online. Uh, we have a, a very large audience on online today. Uh, the subject uh, of today's event is the role of professional facilitators in the United Kingdom in enabling money laundering um, and also reputation laundering. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the resulting sanctions regime has shed light on the UK's harboring of illicit wealth from around the world. It has also revealed the centrality of enablers in the legal and financial sectors in laundering oligarchs' monies and reputations. This was, of course, an open secret for the better part of the last decade. A small number of brave journalists, think tankers, law enforcement officials, academics and politicians have been denouncing this, despite the UK's crippling libel laws. Data leaks such as the Panama Papers, the FinCEN files, uh, the Pandora Papers uh, have also shown this uh, in a very meticulous way. But the current circumstances have galvanized public interest and created the best prospect yet for meaningful policy change. In today's event, we will be discussing past attempts at curbing professional facilitators, the inadequacy of present um, um, regulations, and the prospect of improvement through the upcoming Economic Crime Bill, among other ongoing efforts. Most pressingly, we will be asking, after a decade of signaling reform intent, is change really about to happen? To discuss these matters today, we have invited Dame Margaret Hodge and Andrew Mitchell, two of the foremost actors in this effort at tackling illicit money in the UK today. Dame Margaret Hodge is, has been MP for Barking and Dagenham since 1994. She previously served as leader of Islington London Borough Council from 1982 to 1992. She served as the first female chair of the Public Accounts Committee from 2010 to 2015 and held several government positions in the last Labour government, holding portfolios across education, work, pensions and, and other business culture, many other dimensions. Most recently, Margaret's interest in combating illicit finance has dominated her time as a, a backbench MP uh, in her role as co-chair uh, of uh, the UK's all-party parliamentary group on anti-corruption and responsible tax. On my left, I have uh, Andrew Mitchell, who has been MP for Sutton Coldfield since 2001 and was previously MP for Gedling from 1987 to 1997. 
Um, he served as in cabinet as Secretary of State for International Development from 2010 to 2012, and subsequently as government chief whip in the House of Commons. In 2017, he became a senior advisor to the African Development Bank. Andrew has extensive experience uh, on development issues and is co-chair with Margaret of the UK's all-party parliamentary group on anti-corruption and responsible tax. Uh, both Margaret and Andrew have worked cross-party and tirelessly to deliver on numerous policy initiatives, which clamp down on dirty money, illicit finance, and money laundering. Uh, thank you for both for joining us. We are delighted to have you here today. And as discussed, um, Andrew and um, Margaret will make very quick introductory remarks. Uh, we will then have a brief conversation about tw 20, 25 minutes, during which I'll ask some, some lead questions to get the, the conversation going. Uh, John Heathershaw, uh, who's professor of uh, politics and international relations at the University of Exeter and one of the foremost experts uh, in this field, has led many uh, large research projects in this field and is also the author of several books, including Dictators Without Borders, which I think is one of the landmark books in this field, will be providing us with brief comments on the discussion. And at that stage, we will open the floor to your comments and to your questions. There will also be engagement with the questions from the online audience uh, through Clara Boyer, who's somewhere in the audience and who's responsible for organizing, for managing the event. So without further ado, Andrew, if you'd like to uh, start the conversation with some introductory remarks and then I'll pass the word on to Margaret. Well, th thank you. Thank you very much indeed for your very kind introduction and for the opportunity to discuss these important matters uh, this afternoon. Um, I wanted just to make some general comments on, on why this area is so important. And then Margaret, who is the real expert on all this stuff, will, will, will say something, I think, about the very specific uh, subtext of this afternoon's discussion. But I'm very conscious that this is part of an overall wrapper about African governance and the challenges and whether the UK is finally changing. So I just wanted to make a really three points about why this is so important. And, and, and the first is, that although we focused most recently on uh, Russia and Russian oligarchs and money stolen by that route, there is the, a most enormous amount of money that is stolen from the developing world. And uh, there's pretty credible research work done, including by the World Bank, which suggests that the amount of money that is stolen from the developing world is something of the order of a trillion dollars uh, a year. And it is you know, the, the failures of governance above all, which mean that bent politicians, corrupt warlords and business people are able to uh, steal from states which don't have the uh, right structures, the rule of law, the correct procedures to uh, defend their innate wealth from being removed. And anyone um, who wants to understand the importance of all of this should read Stefan Durkon, whom I had the pleasure of working with uh, at DFID, his book about uh, governance, which, which effectively says it's about leadership. So where you have really good leadership, then you do build up these structures which stop this sort of thing from happening. So with this enormous amount of money that is stolen from Africa, uh, particularly Africa, but other parts of the developing world, the, the, the UK we now know is hugely exposed as an inadvertent or advertent enabler because we have a rule of law here. We also have overseas territories which come under the British flag and come under our Queen and therefore have a, a quote unquote rule of law where illicit funds can be deposited 
and where they are, quote unquote, uh, safe. And uh, these tax havens grant anonymity, and it's why Margaret Hodge and I, cross party, have tried to make sure that there's much more transparency uh, injected and that we have uh, structures which are far more open and open registers of beneficial ownership. And the proof of the fact that we were quite effective at this is that in the British Virgin Islands some time ago, there was a demonstration, a mass demonstration, where I believe there were placards saying, hang Hodge and Mitchell. So that suggests that we, we, had, we, we had, had got, had got that, that right. So, so um, the, the, onto this afternoon's specific uh, subject, given this uh, enormous amount of stolen money from one form or another. Um, the enablers of that, the accountants and the lawyers, the baddies will always be able to pay more and get the, the uh, and, get, and, and the baddies will be able to get the best advice from these enablers. And we've seen it too. We've seen the British uh, uh, anti-crime agencies without enough budget, too worried that if they lose, what will the effect be on their reputations? And they just can't perform. And it's one of the big, big problems. And the extent of all of this so clearly demonstrated by the Panama and Pandora Papers, it's very difficult to get the Treasury to make sure that there's enough money, the structures of maybe what they used to do in the old days in the city where the, the uh, takeover code uh, was run by lawyers who, as part of their career structure, would go and work for the government service and Freshfields and Linklaters and so on, would top up their salaries. And it was part of the way in which you got to the, the top in those professions. Well, you know, the government doesn't operate like that in, in, in the policing and anti-crime uh, stuff. And the second point on this is the difficulty of getting change through Parliament. And that is because when Margaret and I hove into view, uh, civil servants have two reactions. The first is, I've already created a perfect bill. So why are these ghastly backbenchers coming and telling me it can be improved? And the second is the not invented here syndrome, which means that if it was possible to improve it, we'd already have thought of it. We don't need irritating backbenchers like Margaret Hodge and Andrew Mitchell to tell us what to do. And, and so getting change is very hard. Uh, I asked um, Mrs. May whether she would implement the Magnitsky regulations, which are visa bans and 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 currency and money um, uh, freezing, uh, and uh, asked her the question, Prime Minister's question, she said no. Then the Russians used biological weapons on, on the streets of a British city, and a few weeks later asked her the same question, and she said yes. So, you know, that shows you that engaging with the issue about whether it's a good thing to do or not is, is if it comes from the backbenches, is, is not often um, very well received. And the final point I wanted to give you as an example was we're, we're hoping for another crime bill. Margaret may say something about it in a moment. But if you look at Companies House, you realize, I mean, it's the best possible example of all these difficulties. So Companies House, if you want to set up a company, Britain very proudly says it's the, we're the best country in the world to set up a company because it takes you six minutes to register your company at Companies House. And everyone says, goodness me, hasn't Britain got capitalism well sorted out? But in fact, you know, if I register a Companies House, a company, and I say my name is Michael Mouse or Mickey Mouse, it will go through. So Companies House is a, is a library. It's not, it doesn't investigate anything. And for a long time, Margaret and I have been banging on the government. You've got to give Companies House powers. You've got to ensure the Treasury fund them to have those powers. And then you, uh, and you, and 
company's house, which from 2016, at least in theory, you had to uh, say who you were if you registered. Of course, if you had a company in the British Virgin Islands, you would register in the name of the ABC Corporation rather than uh, who you actually were. So it just, I'm, I'm really just showing the huge uh, difficulties. The new company's bill will apparently have a go at sorting out companies' house. It will deal with information sharing, the power to seize crypto assets, and it will set up a new kleptocracy cell in the National Crime Agency. But all those things require money, immense focus from government ministers with other things to do, and an unremitting commitment. And I go back to my first point, which is the reason the commitment is so important, is if we don't help these states uh, preserve their assets so they can build up education and health services and a rule of law, the golden thread of international development, as David Cameron used to call it, then uh, they will uh, go backwards, they will be engulfed in conflict and in poverty, and all of those things, for reasons everyone in this room will understand, threaten our way of life in this country, as well as the way of life of the poor people who are caught up in those circumstances. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, we, we had a question later on about the, specifically the African dimension, but you, you beat me to it. Um, obviously, the reason why we're con convening this event uh, is that we, we feel that the, the issues that are normally discussed as pertaining exclusively to Africa are actually part of a much wider global story. And one of the concerns that I'll return to is that even as we are having a conversation that seems to have a, a reformist bend to it, it tends to be a conversation about Russia, very targeted at Russia, not at systemic reform. But we'll, we'll come back that's to that's that. That's why I thought I... Exactly. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Margaret? Um, I'd try to make three brief points as well. The first is to put this into context. I mean, I started on this journey when I chaired the Public Accounts Committee. And um, Andrew's friend, David Davis, came up to me and he'd, uh, he'd uh, chaired it before me. And he said, I'll help you, Margaret. So I said, thank you, very grateful. I had a clue what I was doing. And he said, Vodafone, you've got to look at Vodafone's tax affairs. And I sort of looked bewildered, thinking, what on earth have the tax affairs of a private company got to do with a, a, a parliamentary committee that is supposed to oversee value for money? Uh, and then it came to me that, of course, it was uh, it came to the heart of what whether HMRC is efficient as to whether or not they collect the money in. Um, and then we started the first thing, I, I, this is a slight digression, the first thing was I, we had a really boring session with Vodafone, uh, with uh, HMRC, and I was sitting there reading the papers on Sunday night thinking this is so tedious, and happened to pick up Private Eye. And Private Eye was running a story about Goldman Sachs sweetheart deal. And I thought, oh, I'll ask them that tomorrow. And I won't go into the whole story. It was a very funny story, but the, the getting onto Goldman Sachs' sweetheart deal started this whole journey. That brings me to the main point, which is it is part of a spectrum. So I saw see economic crime. You know, it starts with, you know, uh, we all buy an ISA. It then goes to, do you pay your cleaner by cash? It then goes to, you pay your builder by cash. And it again gets into economic uh, wrong, it then gets into uh, aggressive tax avoidance, economic crime. And I would argue that, that the real danger to the UK is not just that we are a jurisdiction of choice today for dirty money, with uh, estimates of about nearly £300 billion of dirty money reaching our shores each year. And that's, if you put it into context, a quarter of total public expenditure, so it's a lot of money. But that has started to infect the public domain and politics. And you see that a little bit with the Russian funding of uh, 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 
uh, of conservative politicians, the Chinese funding of uh, uh, labor politicians, and you see it in contracts and things like that. So I see this as a big spectrum. And if we don't call halt, actually Britain's reputation and our success, particularly in the financial services sector, Definitely. is in jeopardy because in the end, uh, people won't, you can't get rich on dirty money, sustainably rich on dirty money. And there's plenty of good money around the world desperate to in, uh, invest, and we would actually grow our financial services sector on that. So the first thing is the spectrum. The second thing is you're right, we're using Ukraine. I mean, we've been bang I've been banging on about these issues now for a decade, and we've had a, we have had some great successes, Andrew and I, on the transparency with overseas territories and ground dependencies was a moment of success. But if we can use Ukraine, to tackle the challenge, I don't apologize for it. And of course the challenge goes well beyond that. And you only have to look at the great leaks. Every leak that came out from the Panama Papers through to the Pandora Papers demonstrates how many world leaders were engaged in uh, 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 hiding their money, maybe legally, but often illicitly. Uh, it's a massive, massive uh, issue. So let's use Ukraine and the moment, uh, the moment that get to try and tackle that. And what I was going to say is we have published, Andrew and my committee, together with another parliamentary committee on banking, so we're making common cause across Parliament, have published a manifesto last week, 10 days ago, where we talk about tackling this on four fronts. So um, we have to look at regulation, we have deregulated the financial services sector, started under Thatcher, continued under Blair and Brown, to such an extent that it's become very easy to use all our corporate structures and our uh, uh, infrastructure to uh, uh, create avenues to bring illicit wealth into the legitimate system. So we have to look at regulation. And one of the issues, one of the arms, I mean, I talk about four arms of reform. One of the areas there is company size. Just to add to what Andrew said, it costs you 12 quid to set up a company in Britain. It's completely crazy. It costs you 1,220 pounds to get a visa for a, for a, um, for a, 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 a skilled worker. Yeah, just put that into its context, completely mm. potty. And we could quadruple the amount of money that you uh, to set up a company, and that would give you plenty of resources to equip companies as to do a proper job in unique identifying the, the uh, beneficial owners and then in also doing some red flag raising. So regulation is one issue. Uh, enforcement is another. We are pathetic in enforcement. The Americans are slightly better. Uh, we, the Americans have just increased their budgets in enforcement for 30, uh, by 30%. They see it as a security threat, as well as a, 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 a threat to standards of living and all that sort of stuff. We've cut ours by 4%. Uh, you look at the number of uh, cases that have been taken around money laundering, it's declined by 35%. You look at the agencies, they're hardly doing anything. Uh, There's a serious fraud office, there's more than... It's cut by over 50% the number of cases they're, they're taking at the moment. So enforcement is the second arm, and we think that's partly through funding. But we And again, you could fund it by giving the enforcement agencies a percentage of the fines and assets that they seize in pursuing uh, dirty money. The third one is transparency, which Andrew and I have done work around, and there is further work that... Uh, uh, the, the government brought in this first economic crime bill just, just uh, at the beginning of the Ukraine crisis, 
uh, where property is used, UK property is a key way in which dirty money is uh, laundered, literally laundered around sort of jurisdictions worldwide um, and brought in uh, buying property here in the UK. And we reckon 1.5 billion pounds worth of Russian property here in the UK at the moment. And um, I mean, the figures, nobody has an accurate figure, but they get, you're, you're talking about billions of billions, uh, as you say, elsewhere. So I think some transparency is still an issue. And we've got some issues there which are difficult to tackle. So Osmanov, who is one of the Russian oligarchs who owned Arsenal and has now owned another football company, football club, which I don't support, so I can't remember the name of. But anyway, <laughs> um, he has transferred all his assets when they were supposedly frozen. He's transferred them into a trust. So how we actually get transparency around trusts without interfering in the right of individuals to set up, you know, grandparent trusts for their children's uh, expensive fees here at Oxford or whatever it is. Um, that's, that's, that, that is a very difficult issue that we have still to crack. And if you can help us with that, it'd be great. But transparency, third one. And then the fourth one is accountability. At the moment, there is absolutely zero accountability for all the activities that takes place in this space uh, through Parliament to the public and to, to campaigners and academics and, and all those that have an interest in the area. And um, we have a proposition there where we should set up a, a, a joint committee of the two houses, a select committee of the two houses that would meet under Privy Council terms, so it would meet in confidence, that could look at all these issues, look at individual cases, and then do systemic reports that would reach the public domain. Finally, to enable us, Enablers, um, this is a difficult issue on which to build cross-party support. Some of these issues, it's easy, but enablers is tough. Um, uh, you know, our financial services sector has enjoyed massive growth through the deregulation that, that, it, it, that it's had, uh, but they are at the heart of facilitating dirty money. And we have to, and they are never held to account. They always get away scot-free. And you just look at all the, the, all the leaks all of them are about enablers. They, whether it's Mossack uh, Fonseca or whether it's Applebee's or whether it's actually the Pandora Papers were really interesting because that went across the space of all enablers to 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 see where they are, to uh, show how they facilitate. In some some places they collude. In some other instances, they really do facilitate. And I learned about this early on in my journey when PricewaterhouseCoopers for whom I worked as a, for a couple of years before I became an MP, I hasten to add, literally they were selling, they were mass marketing tax avoidance schemes, aggressive tax avoidance schemes uh, from by getting companies to, uh, uh, to take money out of the UK into Luxembourg. And they completely denied that they were doing that. It was seen as cool and good to do that. And that cool, you know, it was, it, you, were a, you were a cool, cool sort of, person or a company or a financial advisor if you help people uh, uh, avoid evade tax. And that, had, I think, has infected everything. But it is really important that we bring those enablers to account. And the difficulty is, one, they're a big sector, and it would cause a little bit of a ripple in that sector. And in the post-Brexit uh, 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 time, 
when uh, the economy is also feeling the shudders of Brexit and the shudders of COVID and the shudders of Ukraine, there will be a reluctance on government side to do anything that destabilizes even the slightest way the financial services sector. Secondly, they are very, very close to government. Uh, uh, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with government talking to stakeholders, but there is something wrong when government takes that beyond that to allow undue influence on regulation or allows a revolving door appointments or allows contracts or allows uh, public appointments to enter the fray. And they are very, very, they're a very, very, very powerful lobby. And you see that all, all the time. And the third thing I have to say with this particular government, and I don't hold Andrew in any way uh, as part of this, but with this particular government, there is a very close sort of financial relationship between um, uh, the Conservative Party at the moment and the financial services sector, which is deeply unhealthy and uh, shows Britain losing its moral compass. So we're in a difficult time of tackling that a very, very vested and powerful interest and, 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 and holding them to account. But we see that as uh, absolutely crucial. We have got a number of ideas in our manifesto as to how you'd start down that road. Uh, I'd be interested to hear from you uh, if you've got other ideas, because we're, we're in the market for those at the moment. And the only interesting thing finally to say is this has been a real, for me, an interesting journey. You know, I'm a sort of, you know, Labour politician through and through, tribal Labour. But I, the only thing we'll get, way we'll get this, anything done in this space at the, this point is by working across parties. And I've talked now to Conservatives one-to-one -one in my room, lots and lots and lots of them from right across the spectrum of the Conservative Party. And there really is, uh, people come from a different, uh, different view to the, to the same conclusion, but there really is very little resistance to regulating, to getting better enforcement, to getting stronger transparency, and to getting what better accountability, to getting those four things implemented. So this is a moment in time when I think we could achieve change and we've just got to grasp it. Thank you, Margaret. Um, let me start with a question, with, with a quote from you. You said, and I quote, we have become, we, the UK, have become the jurisdiction of choice for every kleptocrat, criminal, and money launderer in the world, end of quote. Um, to give our audience a sense of diagnostic, how, how did we get here? What happened over the last 30 years? Uh, I, I fully agree with your, with, with, with your statement. How did we get here? Well, I think, uh, I, uh, I think it's, it's partly the deregulation. So it's started with the Thatcher Big Bang. It then uh, it was the deregulation under Brown. Mm -hmm. Gordon Brown and carried on with you know, the, the Blair Brown years. So I think that deregulation made it coupled with UK has always been a trusted jurisdiction. So, you know, if you can get something done here, that was one aspect of it. I think our relationship with our overseas terrorism crown dependencies meant we had the secrecy jurisdiction linked to us. Uh, and that was, uh, uh, you know, really, re that helped us uh, a lot too. Um, uh, I think those, you know, and also we've got the biggest financial services sector. So when you're trying to, it's, I, I think uh, somebody called, talked about borderless money in bordered states. I think it's Oliver Bullock, Bullock used that yeah. phrase. So if you're trying to shift money across jurisdictions, um, uh, and we've got a very big financial services sector, you know, the biggest, us in, in America, that, that was hugely important. 
uh, we speak English, all those sort of things. Um, I think that helped uh, an enormous, and our enforcement is pathetic. So even where we do have rules, we completely fail to uh, enforce them. So companies house being the classic example that Andrew talked about. You know, you can set up a company- law enforcement, law and, office, National Crime Agency, they're yeah. woefully under, yeah. under banned. And then we did things like golden visas, you know, that, that brought more and more, you know, that helped. And that was brought in by the Labour government in 2008. So there's a whole raft of things that that brought in billions of money, lots and lots of Russian money, as not elsewhere as well, but lots of it. Andrew, what is the articulation between the City of London and the, the Crown dependencies and the British Overseas Territories? You and Margaret mentioned some notable successes that you've both jointly achieved in this regard. Uh, but the limits of those successes, the autonomy of these jurisdictions, as we can see from the British Virgin Islands pushing back over the last two weeks, um, what can be done? And first, how does it work? And second, what can the House of Commons, what can Westminster do to it uh, that hasn't been done yet? Well, just, just sort of eliding from your first question to Margaret, I mean, the, the fact is that the City of London is the top or one of the top three financial centers in the world plus you've had the deregulation, plus you have the rule of law. So, you know, if you are a villain and you've got a lot of money and you're going to put it in London, you know that there are rules of ownership, there are property rights and so on, and you're going to sleep much better and you put it in a lesser jurisdiction. So that is the pull factor. And then uh, it's been very difficult for the government, for example, on the British Virgin Islands, because the British Virgin Islands and the other Caribbean dependencies are a relic of empire. Uh, they were not big enough to stand on their own two feet when empire came to an end. So they've remained in this rather sort of odd relationship where they share our, our crown, the, the, the queen, and um, they have uh, appeals to British courts and to the Privy Council in certain circumstances, and they have secrecy. And this is a toxic combination. And so, for example, in the early days when Margaret and I were trying to make the case for open registers of beneficial ownership, and this got a real lift in 2016 in, under the uh, Cameron Osborne G8, where Britain declared that we would now have open registers of beneficial ownership, and the EU said that they would sign up to it in due course, but it, but it all took a very long time and it did not penetrate through to the overseas territories. And in that classic British way, what they said was, look, open registers where journalists and others can come along and can see who owns something. This is just a busybody's charter. What we will do is we will have closed registers, but we will ensure that any law enforcement agency in Britain, or indeed America anywhere else, can come to us and get the answer to a question. And if it's to do with terrorism, we will answer that question within an hour. And on anything else to do with the law, we'll answer it within 24 hours. And everyone thought, that's a great idea. And then you got the Pandora and the Panama Papers published. And you saw why that doesn't work because you don't know the questions to ask. You can't join up the dots on all this dirty money moving around mm. the world. And you have to have experts, busybodies, civil society, journalists, investigators, able to see what those dots are. And that's the Panama Papers blew away any credible argument from government. 
in Britain to avoid having overseas, uh, having these open registers. And so we were able to impose it because the government didn't have a majority and Margaret and I explained to the government they would lose a vote, so they caved in. And the way these things work, it was so obviously the right thing to do. And of course, what happens when Dominic Raab was the foreign secretary, he issued a, a written statement saying it was government policy to have all these overseas territories having open registers. And I sent him a note saying whichever official drafted that written <laughs> ministerial statement should be promoted and has got a, a brass neck to do so because you had this force down your throat. And he sent me back a WhatsApp saying, actually, I drafted it myself. <laughs> so, uh, Margaret, I, I want to, to get to the heart of something which is implicitly why some people who understand these practices to be moral nonetheless are reluctant to go against them, uh, which is, uh, is, it, is it in the British self-interest to regulate these practices or will that be economically negative because it will chase away some forms of business which are dubious but are lucrative? Uh, we see, for instance, what's happening with Russian sanctions. Dubai, is, which is already a, a very dubious jurisdiction, is benefiting massively uh, from uh, financial, Russian financial, financial flows. Or is it alternatively the, 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 the reputational impact uh, in, for, uh, on the UK's uh, harboring of these practices? Is that going to be more significant in, in, in the long run? In other words, what is the hard-edged business case for cleaning up? You know, clearly. I'd like to hear Andrew on that as well, please. Okay, well, no, sorry. Clearly, the business community will argue that it'll be deeply damaging to the financial services sector. And uh, um, uh, we would argue back, I would argue, I'm sure, and Andrew would argue back, we both argue back, that you will not get sustained prosperity on the back of dirty money. You will, If you lose your reputation, if you look at all the indices, after they've FinCEN papers, I think it was one of them. America has now downgraded us as a trusted jurisdiction, sees us like Cyprus. And that, you know, we're, we're now on that trajectory going down. And if you're not trusted, clean money won't want to come here. Uh, and there is so much clean money floating around the world uh, that uh, we, can, we can and should take advantage of our historic reputation of trusted jurisdiction to build on that. Um, uh, but it is, it, it, it's in, in all sorts of ways, they are making a for, I mean, FinCEN, I can't remember which leaks it was, but one of them with the banks, the banks in particular, I think it was the FinCEN papers, they fill in, you can just see it, anybody who has anything to do with the bank, any of us having anything to do with the bank, drives you absolutely potty in the checks they do. I chair a, I chair a charity at the moment, chair, uh, and, um, I need to, they need my signature. I can't tell you the hurdles I'm going through. It must cost them a ruddy fortune, to, particularly because I'm a politically exposed person. So uh, they're probably but doing you it. You are. I am, yeah, I, I, I'm a really bad person. But, um, and then you see the FinCEN leaks, which were these leaks of papers. They, what they were, were documents that banks have to fill in this um, suspicious activity report and give it to the to the uh, enforcement agencies. And this is the American, FinCEN is the American enforcement agency. And what they clearly ruddy do is they fill it in in their bureaucratic way, but they don't then do the checks that they do on the likes of me chairing my charity. Mm -hmm. They then carry on, they just carry on 
um, uh, uh, taking money because it's easy money to make and it makes them lots and lots of money. And the other, the other leaks we saw was actually, this was perhaps one of the most shocking, it was an early lesson for me. Do, do, I don't know if any of you remember the HSBC leaks from Switzerland, they've known as the Falciani leaks. Mm. Um, and uh, out of that, it was, I mean, we were in the heart of that. This was, this was the Swiss branch of HSBC. And anybody with any mouse would see it was making much greater profits than any other bit of HSBC, but nobody thought why. And they were making it because they were encouraging their clients there to do tax evasion, and they were using it to launder money through. Uh, and the only response of, it's a very good example of the spectrum as well, the only response of the head of HSBC to all this was to go after the whistleblower. They, do, they weren't interested in what the whistleblower had found. They just wanted to get the whistleblower and they tried to pursue him to the courts and get, and, 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 and get him done. And then the woman who was in, I'm sorry to say this, uh, the woman who was in charge, she, she ran the audit committee for HSBC, Rona Fairhead, went on to become a Tory minister, a conservative minister for trade. And she had evidence when she came to the public accounts committee was purely shocking. You know, she she should have headed the audit committee. This should have been the sort of red flags that she'd been looking for. Totally failed. And she really talked about the whistleblowers as the thief. Um, and then the only other thing I would say about all this is the lawyers who were now who are suddenly coming lawfare, which you know you're all hearing about a bit more, and um, uh, a lot of the well, you're you're subject to a bit of that. A lot of the um, investigative journalists who've written brilliant books. There's a brilliant book on Putin's people by and I Yeah, yeah. There's a, a load of really really brilliant stuff. And Tom Bergen has written a book. A guy who works at the FT. They are now pursued by the oligarchs with lawsuits, which are, again, our leading law firms are making zillions out of. And if you're an oligarch spending four, 10 million quid on just a legal case is nothing if you've got 12 to 20 billion pounds as your, um, uh, as your wealth that you've stolen from the Russian people. And that's another aspect which we have simply got to bear down on, you know, which is in our manifesto um, uh, to stop this uh, litigation being used and lawyers in the UK uh, using it to, for them to make money and to stop short stories being told. The, the, the basic problem is that the baddies run rings around the goodies. And so what we have to do is we have to try and even it up. Uh, that's the basic problem. The baddies have the money; they can, they can buy the best lawyers. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's. We've got to, we've got to make it more difficult. That's not just about tightening the law. It's also, it's, it's about a whole series of things. Uh, when, when I got back into the House of Commons in in two thousand and one, having had a four year enforced sabbatical following the Blair landslide in nineteen ninety seven, I'd gone back to the city and was earning my living at Lazard and. And, you know, Lazard in, in, the, in those days uh, had a rule, which no Russians. And I can remember going to the Greybeards in the, in the bank and saying, I've got this deal and it's got X, Y and Z to it. And the director would say to me, uh, Andrew, 
we have a rule here, no Russians, and there's a Russian element in this, and you can't do it. And that was a sort of quality of judgment, which I think they deserve very high credit for. Now, when I got back in 2001, the Labour Party was in power, and they were introducing a uh, series of restrictions to address the issue of money laundering. And uh, I, having come out of the city, was very conscious of the fact that these changes and restrictions were in danger of impeding the good guys without actually fettering the bad guys. And I can remember asking the hapless Labour minister, how much money laundering is there in London? And they said, well, a lot. And, and, I, and I said, but look, you know, if there's a billion of money laundering, then these restrictions are probably massively excessive. And if it's 40 billion, they're probably nowhere near enough. And how can you bring in these regulations um, if you don't know what you're dealing with? Now, the reality remains that those regulations stopped uh, good guys from practicing their business and carrying out their business and loaded costs onto the consumers and didn't really uh, stop uh, the bad guys. And then the banks realized that the thing to do was to report everything and swamp the, swamp the regulatory authorities and report anything at all with a red flag. And then they're swamped, so you can't, you can't do anything about it. And this is the problem. We need, to, we need to change the dynamics of a system where the baddies are always uh, likely to, to succeed. And in what I said before, I was trying to demonstrate that even when you know, we try to support the goodies, the system actually is quite uh, uh, inert in, in, in the way it handles it. And I'm not also, I'm, less, I'm much more wary of the Americans than I think Margaret is. Because I mean, I think American justice means you either say you're guilty or you go to prison. You, know, you, you have to plea bargain. The case of Mike Lynch at the moment, I, I'm extremely perturbed by it, very perturbed indeed, because he, if, if he doesn't, because he has resisted being sent to America, extradited to America, he is by definition a flight risk. So if he goes to America to plead his case, he will be inside on the moment he lands in America in a horrible penitentiary. They will take two to three years to decide what's charged with, and they will turn up on day one and say, if you plead guilty, then you will uh, go to prison for 18 months in a rather pleasant place. And if you uh, and if you don't plead guilty, we'll have you for 30 years. And I don't think we want to go down anywhere near that route. And the other thing is that partly because the president comes from Delaware, where there's an awful lot of dirty money hidden anyway, you know, they're not in they're not in the business of introducing open registers of beneficial ownership, but they are. Uh, moving towards having closed registers of beneficial ownership. And in the case of America, that is a big deal. And you know, maybe we'll get them to open registers in, in due course. But uh, getting the American system to move to even closed registers would be a big bonus. Um, if I may, two very brief questions to both, and then we'll, we'll go to John Hedershaw, who will have some, some comments and, and some questions. The question I have for, for Andrew, relates to what we discussed earlier. Uh, some fear that this belated effort is still too Russia-centric uh, and misses out on, on real structural reform. My own expertise is on Africa. And what I'm struck is that when you're dealing with Nigeria or Kenya or Angola or South Africa, the London names that crop up, we're talking about um, lawyers, bankers, management consultants, uh, PR experts, in some cases, even the sort of people that ease uh, philanthropic donations to universities and think tanks and what, what, uh, all of that, they're exactly the same individuals and firms. 
Uh, there's no Africa pipeline. They're the ones we've all been dealing with in, in the uh, sort of Eurasia context. And yet they don't make the news, uh, or at least in the current context, there doesn't seem to be appetite for action against all dirty money and not just Russia's. Uh, am I too pessimistic here, or do you think that we're turning a corner here? Well, I, th I think that Russia is the you know crime of the moment. I, I think I'm not as pessimistic as you. I think we've been very we supported uh, President Buhari, who got back a lot of uh, dirty money from London. He did deals with people. I mean, he managed to uh, get get a lot of money back. Uh, we were cooperative in that. The case of James Ibori was was which happened on my watch, or the the work to get him happened on my watch was quite quite well done not not perfect but made some progress i think we're very conscious and that's the reason why i opened with this development thing because the the stolen money is estimated to be about four times the total flows of development money that goes into africa and and that sort of that sort of puts it in 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 uh, context and i think jason sharman from who like me is from cambridge and who is sitting in the audience he's done a lot of work on this stuff uh from from Kings in Cambridge. Um, and it's the whole waterfront we're going after. And I think the current focus, of course, on Russia and Ukraine is, um, is, is, has grown. It was pretty weak until the Salisbury biological weapons attack. It then got a lot stronger, and now, now it's getting stronger again. Um, but never underestimate the inadequacy of the uh, British uh authorities charged with clamping down on this they are short of money they are short of expertise and this is not police work you know this is the work work for the top accountants and lawyers in in cracking these people and the, the police tend to think it's the al capone theory which is you can't do it on the on the uh on, on the complex stuff so you do them for you know actually tax evasion or parking tickets or something that you can't do it like that you've got to have the you've got to get the best people going after the baddies uh, and not working with the baddies uh, margaret following from there uh your cross-party work has been exemplary and there are real achievements to it yet successive governments have failed to regulate in particular the facilitators is the moment now is, is it different now and why is that well we're going to push it and this is why grasp Ukraine to look at the wider tapestry. That's sort of my message. You know, I never thought this would happen and it has happened. So we're going to grasp it. And I think on, on the regular, I, I think it's a, it is the toughest of the issues that we're confronting. So uh, stuff you can do from here to create a sort of environment in which it becomes inevitable is really important. Uh, you've got to look at how they are supervised themselves. So all these, all these, uh, advisors have uh, uh, professional bodies that uh, are supposed to regulate them and also actually do work promote on their behalf you know lobby on their behalf they're absolutely bleeding noteless at the moment so we have got we've got propositions in our so-called in our manifesto to toughen up the supervision and the regulation either uh, by toughening up the government agency that oversees the supervisors, or there are various ways you could do it. That's that's the first thing. The second thing is we are we want to introduce, and the Law Commission is is looking at it, um, uh, a uh, a new offence. It's very very difficult to get at the facilitators in, at the moment because the whole of the law around liability for giving wrong advice or giving advice that leads to wrong action 
was based on sort of 19th century businesses, small uh, single person businesses. So we're, we're, we're trying to put in a, a thing of what we call a failure to prevent offence. And um, that is being looked at by the Law Commission. I'm really worried that the Law Commission won't report in time to feed it into the Economic Crime Bill, but it's another area that is uh, hugely important. So that's the second thing. So we've got a pr proposition around supervision, a proper proposition around introducing uh, new offences. The third thing is the accountability framework, the uh, enforcement framework. So if you get tougher accountability enforcement, that opens it to public account. And if you can open to public account, that you know, embarrasses some of these uh, 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 you know, household names in the in the yeah. in the finance industry, uh, financial sector, and, and in the law that don't really want to get sullied with dirty money at the moment. Uh, and then the, the forcing, which is coming from a uh, somebody in the Labour Party, I think is really important. I think we should use their ruddy expertise. I've always felt that. So I think you know, poacher turned gamekeeper a little bit in this area wouldn't be a bad thing, uh, because we saw it in the UWOs that you did all the work on, um, that uh, there just is not the expertise within government uh, to, that can stand up to the professional expertise that is at the moment exploiting and creating this environment where, you know, with the ju jurisdiction of choice for dirty money. So I would bring them in and I would make them all. Um, uh, I would use them uh, on a, uh, uh, what's it called, no pay, you know, no fee, pro no, bono. no, no, yeah, pro, no, no, not pro bono. They they won't do it on that basis. <laughs> but <laughs> no win, no fee. Yes. No, on a no win, no fee basis, and uh, get a few poachers turned gamekeepers, and that I think would uh, in strengthen our enforcement. It's it's I don't think all my political colleagues would agree with me, but I do, I think that's one of the ways through it. Thank you, Margaret. We're going to hear some comments from uh, uh, John Heathershaw. We will then give Andrew and Margaret the opportunity to respond briefly to them. And then hopefully we should have about half an hour's interaction with the audience. And I know there's amazing expertise in this audience. So it's, it's really, I'm, I'm looking forward to your comments and, and, and questions. John. Thank you, Ricardo. So um, six months ago, almost six months ago, uh, Ricardo and I with colleagues uh, in this room uh, from Exeter, Oxford and Cambridge, uh, Tom, Maine, Tanner Prelak, Jason Sharman, and also colleagues in the US, published a report called The UK's Kleptocracy Problem, How Servicing the Post-Soviet Elite uh, Damages the Rule of Law, with Chatham House, uh, the Royal Institute of International Affairs in London. A great deal has happened since then, and even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the Kazakhstan crisis um, brought this issue to the fore. Um, I will just reflect on this in light of the, the comments Andrew and uh, Margaret have made and, and finish each of those four comments with, with a question for the, for the two of you. So what might action, what form might action in this area take? We've heard a great deal and uh, a lot of what I will say will sort of really just highlight or emphasize again the points that Andrew and Margaret have made. But I think first of all, this is, requires long-term but also short-term action. So in the sense that the deregulation of financial services created these problems actually prior to that, the creation of the offshore system from about the 1960s, this is an historical evolution, a change in the nature of global political economy of which London and the UK is at the center, which has emerged over decades. It's going to take a long time to regulate that effectively. But there is this moment right now to do something about this 
which is about recreating state capacity in this area. When the offshore system was created, the Foreign Office and Treasury basically said to uh, the uh, overseas territories we've just mentioned, you write your own rules and we'll go along with those. What we need is a new state capacity to deal with this. And, and members like Andrew and Margaret at the forefront are impressing government to do that. Um, I was struck in the Queen's speech recently how kleptocracy was mentioned. This word was used in the guidance notes that the government issued. And I did a little check of Hansard and found that kleptocracy or kleptocrat had been mentioned 180 times since 1800. The most interesting thing about that was about 140 of those mentions were in the last five years. And about half of all mentions were since January of 2022, since January of this year. A number of them would, of course, been by Andrew and Margaret. Uh, and my question to you is, does this matter? If we establish kleptocracy, this is not a newfangled term, it's a classical term, as a principle in UK law, that if you're an enabler handling funds from a politically exposed person from kleptocracy, which we can identify, we can designate, we can put on a, risk of high, a list of high-risk third countries, is that something that can be established as a principle in UK law that we should press for and push for is should there be a UK list of high risk third countries which might be a, a great deal better than that of the financial financial action task force list or the EU's list that we followed previously. Secondly, it seems to me that action in this, this area must be moral, but also in our interests. And it is um, very often the moral value thrown against attempts to regulate is privacy. It's a great virtue in Britain. I sort of feel it should be one of those national values we teach to our kids in primary school because privacy is often put out there against actually some of the Nolan principles that should and indeed we hold out as those things governing public life, which include integrity, openness and accountability. If you push back with privacy as a personal virtue, you're often pushing back against those Nolan principles. Uh, we see this in the university's world, where the failure to establish clear ethics of self-regulation about donations means that some of us have felt the need to push for a change in the law to force universities to publish their donations. And that's an amendment proposed by Jesse Norman for the, to the Higher Education Bill going through Parliament now. But that failure of morality, which can be pointed out, also needs to be accompanied by a recognition that it's actually in our interests in the way that Margaret discussed, and also in our, her losing a moral compass, losing our moral compass paper with King's College in March, to, to address this, because the research actually shows that the net value to the UK economy of a great deal of this activity is, is either negligible or negative. If it has a value, it might be through tax avoidance schemes, which obviously take from the public purse. If it's something like the tier one investor scheme that's been mentioned, the research on that actually comparative across Europe shows that it has very little uh, negligible effect, which is when it was uh, ended, our current scheme was ended earlier this year. Uh, part of the reason for that, of course, was that many dubious individuals, including sanctioned individuals, had been let into the country and got residency and then citizenship through that route but there was also no real economic value to it. Uh, so a question that comes out of that really is, um, how do we convince the government of that? How do we convince the government that it's in economic interest, that, that there's, a, there's a slice of, of financial services that's, that serves high risk, um, very wealthy individuals that may lose out, but the broader UK economy uh, 
very often in most of these occurrences of regulation will not. Uh, thirdly, it's political and requires political will. That's come very clearly from Andrew and Margaret's comments. And Margaret mentioned unexplained wealth orders. It's a classic story, I think, of what often happens in this area. There's initial surge by the government, big announcement, David Cameron in 2016, we're going to do this, um, drawing partly on reports that Tom and Global Witness had, had worked on. Then the loopholes get built in as there's a certain amount of lobbying by the industry. But the key step is the third one, under-resource it. Make sure the whole system is sufficiently under-resourced in the National Crime Agency that it can't work, and then you don't use it. And that's what happens. Boris Johnson's government has not used an unexplained wealth order. It's been reformed now, but it's only fixed some of the problems, and we will see what happens. So how do we break that cycle? Because it seems to be that it does involve cross-party pressure, like the two of you are involved in. But how do we how do we break that typical cycle that I've just outlined there? And finally, um, action in this area is international, or should be international, but in the sense of transnational. So it involves both partnership with other countries, but also with the private sector. Some of our researchers come up with relatively shocking findings. Um, maybe if you've worked in this business long enough, it's entirely what you would expect. But for example, UK um, measures on uh, freezing property and doing those unexplained wealth orders or going after houses of some of those elites in the UK. What we know is if you are in exile, you may well lose your property. But if you're an incumbent in a kleptocratic state, particularly a kleptocratic state, which has good relations with the UK, you will keep it. And the reasons for that are not that exiles are fundamentally more dubious, quite the opposite very often. And if we consider for a moment what that really means, that means that British law in this area is being driven by power relations in kleptocracies, power relations that exist internationally. So there needs to be, uh, as has been discussed, a, a way of recruiting the private sector to a set of standards to prevent that happening. And I think that action on enablers, which has been touched upon, um, is something which seems to be at the top of the agenda. And it may be that's something we come back to, but I'll, I'll stop Thank you, there. Thank you. Uh, these are four extremely rich questions. So in the interest of time, I've asked you to either choose a couple of the questions or give uh, doubtless very concise uh, answers to those complicated questions so that we can uh, I mean I agree it's long term um, uh, UK list of klepto, uh, uh, having a list of kleptocrats um, interesting idea uh, but you touched on, on on something there John which is a real problem that we haven't we haven't found a solution to and I don't think UWOs are either so we have frozen all these assets of all these kleptocrats around in Russia we haven't seized them. And with the war to, in Ukraine to stop tomorrow, arguably they'd all go back. Uh, and we can't think through. So again, your help and support in, help, uh, in us generalists getting to an answer to that one would be really, really helpful. How do we convince the government that it's in the UK's interest? Um, this is, this is, it is really, 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 really hard because of the power of the uh, enablers in 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 our politics and in our um, in our politics today is just really really hard. They're the only ones that I mean. I, I bet you're never brought in to talk to Treasury officials, are you? To debat the Cross Whitehall Illicit Finance Group actually has invited us, and Treasury 
us are open to a degree, but it's in the last few months when they've kind oh, of not okay, been able well, to ignore good. the problem. So <laughs> we've asked for a meeting. I think Treasury is key to this because uh, I think, you know, um, uh, I think you will probably find empathy in the Home Office. You'll probably find Bayes, you know, the, the business department as well. They're, they're okay. But it's Treasury that is key. And you've just got to think of the power of the financial services sector. It's just it's incredibly powerful. So uh, all I can tell you is I'm having these amazing conversations with individual Conservative MPs, some of whom I look at their CV and they come up and they are sort of uh, pro-Brexit, anti-abortion, anti-gay marriage, anti-everything that sort of I hold in. I think, flip, what am I going to talk to this person about? And then they walk into the room and we start talking about Russia. And we find that there's a... <laughs> uh, we can find some common ground. And by the end of the conversation, they say they will support our proposals. So uh, there's no... I think we can build a majority. I'm pretty sure we can build a majority in Parliament. I really do believe that. Whether you can overcome the power of the financial services sector in government i think is is the big uh, challenge and international i couldn't agree with you more uh we did we haven't talked enough about that but uh, uh i think andrew always has a really good answer to this maybe you should go to andrew but i think you know we've got to try internationally but that doesn't stop us acting nationally um also briefly yeah okay, well i just i want to make three general points about your very interesting and expert comments the first is that that i mean i agree with you about the privacy argument because that was what we heard about the open registers that well people in mexico will be kidnapped and so on but actually uh, don't say privacy talk about transparency because at the root of this debate it's sunlight is the best disinfectant you want to have uh, transparency and on, on the political corruption point, all I, all I would say is this. I mean, I think my own party, which raises a lot of money from the private sector, there is clearly too much Russian uh, engagement there. And, you know, it just doesn't feel right that uh, we now have a Lord, somebody of Kensington and Siberia. I mean, it just, you just sort of know that there's something he's not quite right about. So that's the first point. The second, and, and it's not, the second point is this. It's not about geographies, actually. It's because, you know, if you say that there are these six bad countries, the baddies will just go out through another one. So it's not about geographies. And on the international point, I mean, you start from the basis, of course, what you need is an international convention, a sort of UN on financial crime, so that we can all sign up to the same standards. And then you can really crack down. I mean, it won't work. You will never, ever get uh, agreement. The, the French will be perceived and probably actually truthfully going after the British on financial services. So they want particular things which I think will bear down on, on Britain on financial services. Other countries under the, under the broad heading of internationalism will pursue narrow national objectives. And remember, at the moment, we're operating, I mean, it's absolutely devastating for, 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 I find it devastating, that since the war, we've been building more international agreement, consensus, whether it's on trade or justice and the International Criminal Court. We've been building up and the whole thing's been smashed to smithereens now by what has happened in Russia and Ukraine. And the international system is really on the back foot at a time when you need internationalism to tackle all the major problems of the world. So I don't think the international thing really uh, works. Um, on the final point I wanted to make, which was trying to rewrite the private sector and dealing with the under-resourcing, which is all about the bad is always winning, um, you know, recreating state uh, capacity. 
you know, in 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 the city, um, there used to be the takeover panel. Maybe there still is the takeover panel, and the takeover panel regulated takeovers. It stopped it being the wild west when it came to a big company taking over another company, and it 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 dealt with the code. Now. It's, it's very close to the point we are discussing because the government could never afford to hire the best lawyers and the best accountants to go on to the takeover panel. So the, the takeover code was administered by the takeover panel and the people on the takeover panel were very senior lawyers and accountants who did it partly for the prestige, partly for their company and partly because the governor of the Bank of England said, you Freshfields, you Linklaters, you will allocate serious resources to put that senior partner onto the takeover panel. And from the point of view of the individual, it was about their career progress. And from the point of view of the city, it was getting very expensive, very good people at no cost. And, you know, I, I'm not, I mean, we, we require you brilliant uh, academics to work out how uh, we, we do this. But I think there may be something there about how you even up the odds because everything we've come up with so far, far the baddies have got the best guys. Thank you, Andrew, Margaret, and thank you, John. And we're uh, going to open uh, the uh, panel to, to discussions from the floor. I would ask you two things. First, please introduce yourselves and keep the second one is keep the question relatively brief so that we can have as many questions as possible during the next 25, 25 minutes. We have uh, this gentleman over there, Professor Carlos Lopez. Thank you. Hi, my name is uh, Carlos Lopez. I'm a um, visiting fellow at Oxford Martin School right now. Uh, there was a lot of emphasis on the personal, individual type of situation. I'm more concerned from an African perspective with what corporations do and beyond BEPS. Uh, how you can use uh, current accounts in corporations to basically do all sorts of uh, illicit uh, flows uh, become possible and how uh, the absence of regulation makes extremely easy for the companies to just do that. And on the other hand, almost at the other extreme, how there is over-regulation in terms of due diligence by the banks, not very effective in terms of uh, uh, stemming the, the, the problem, but creating the opportunities for big, large banks to justify withdrawing from African markets because, you know, the costs, the transaction costs of that regulation becoming prohibitive and therefore facilitating even further this facility of corporations using the current accounts to basically transfer their monies illicitly. I should, I should add that Professor Lopez is the former Executive Secretary of the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa mm -hmm. and played a leading role in pushing the illicit financial flows agenda uh, back in the days, although the African Union has, has since not really been a, a great actor in this regard. But uh, Andrew, perhaps you could take this question. I, I don't really have very much to add to what the professor has said. I mean, he's sketched out the the problem. Um, and it is, as you said, sir, it is that uh, a lot of very complex regulation is ineffective for what you want to achieve. Uh, but if you don't have regulation at all, then you, you, you have an open door 
for kleptocrats. Um, and that is, a, that is a real dilemma. Next question. Um, was, there was, sorry, the lady in the back. Hi, my name is Fikayo. Um, I'm on the Contemporary China program. I'm doing my master's. Um, so this is a question I've asked every British politician and or diplomat. Should I probably stand? Um, this is a question I've asked every British politician and or diplomat that has come to Oxford since February. Um, and I'll be honest, no one has quite answered the question honestly or directly, but I keep asking. Um, so here goes. <laughs> Illicit money has been flowing into the UK since like... 1990 when uh abacha was president of nigeria um but it's only recently become news when russia has invaded ukraine um and my question is what exactly is the message here to african dictators is the message that you know you can basically put all your money in london and it'll be fine as long as you don't invade another country uh, because we, like the Pandora Papers revealed that at least 40 Nigerian politicians had property in London worth at least 250 million pounds uh, and nobody did anything. But now that Russia has invaded Ukraine, we're going to change the laws. So is the message basically do whatever you want at home, but don't invade another country? Thank you. Thank you, Fikayo. Uh, well, I think we have answered it, but I'll answer it again. The message is mixed at the moment because we, we have a, a system in the UK that allows all that to happen. Uh, but what we are doing is using Ukraine to bear down, not just on Russian oligarchs, but also to bear down on, on um, uh, whether it's from, uh, you know, illicit money from wherever it comes. I mean, I've done two, just as I've done two debates, it's his part of the Russian, on Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan, both of which are so corrupt and there's so much money that's, that they've stolen from their people that's come here. So you can find endless examples. If you look at all the leaks, it's full of money coming out of sometimes actually quite jurisdictions that you don't expect it to come out of. What I, feel, what I will come back to you on a thing, I'm often asked to speak at Commonwealth Parliamentary Association events where they bring people over to, dis, to discuss um, uh, how you should look after public money, how you prevent corruption. And I felt really comfortable doing that 10 years ago. You know, I talk about the systems we had in place we, and we had very little corruption. Today, I feel embarrassed because I think that uh, we have uh, so opened our doors to it that um, we can no longer hold our head up and say we're a trusted uh, jurisdiction that lives by the rule of law. I'm not even sure we don't do that, as we see with our wonderful Prime Minister, uh, if I can just have a little aside on that one. So it's, <laughs> so it's, I think it's a mixed message, but let's use this. Nobody is saying, nobody is saying uh, that it's uh, 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 just us. The most egregious case of where Britain, I know this is a little bit of a minute, but the most egregious case I've come across at the, at the moment of where Britain as facilitating wrongdoing in the world was actually the Lebanese, the, the explosion in the Lebanon with the ammonium nitrate, which was supposed to be going to Mozambique. It was supposed to be sort of fertilizer for Mozambique. And um, sort of a couple of months after it happened, a, a, one of the very great investigative journalists who works for Reuters rang me up and said, do you realize, Margaret, it's a British company that owns that? Um, uh, uh, owns that ammonium nitrate in the warehouse in Lebanon. So I did my usual thing about, you know, typical bloody, you know, we've got an absolutely hopeless um, 
uh, regulatory framework, didn't think twice about it. And then about a month after that, we got we got overwhelmed with, you know, the Lebanese Bar Association, various investigators in Lebanon ring, uh, coming to us. And what emerged in the end, there were, it was a British company. It was set up by a company services provider in Cyprus. She put herself down as the uh, beneficial owner. She wasn't. Uh, and uh, she didn't. She told HMRC that it was a dormant company. It wasn't because it was trading this ammonium nitrate. And uh, that it then emerged that it was sort of Ukrainian Syrians who actually owned this, uh, uh, were the real beneficial owners. It wasn't going anywhere close to Mozambique. It was going to Assad and it was being used for barrel bombs to drop on his civilian population. And that is, for me, the most appalling egregious example of where our dreadful regulatory framework, our useless enforcement, our lack of accountability, and our failure to have transparency leads to terrible things happening right across the world. So, I mean, it's a really, really good question. I, I mean, I would just say to you that it goes back to Stefan Durkon's book that, you know, if Nigeria has a leader who is... You're really shamelessly plugging the book here. <laughs> then I'm not, plugging, I'm not plugging my book, my book, which is, which is available in all good bookshops, just out of the corner, <laughs> called, called Beyond a Fringe, Tales from a Reformed Establishment Lackey. But, but anyway, so, but the point is, it's about the quality of leadership. So when I was, uh, when Stefan and I were at DFID, you know, Diffid, its main work was trying to bring James Ibori's money, which had been distributed amongst his doctor, his wife, and his mistress, um, trying to get hold of that money. And uh, the department did a lot of good in that respect. But you need a leader in Nigeria, like Buhari now, who, who is intent on recovering stolen funds. And then you, you've got something to work with. And indeed, on uh, my watch, we saw the people in the city of London police who are most engaged in this sort of work. And I uttered the immortal words never heard by being uttered by any minister in any go other government. You can have as much money as you can spend well to prosecute these causes. So, so I mean, although you're right in saying that there, there's, there's been a very narrow emphasis now on uh, old Soviet Union, Russia, the, the people who Margaret's done so much work to track down, um, that, that actually the work of government was in, was in, in, in Africa and Nigeria being the, the place where there were the richest pickings, as it were, we focused on them very much. In answer to your second point about, um, about uh, uh, identifying these properties in London, you know, that's what open registers are about. And, and what we want, we require, you know, the name attached to the property, Andrew Mitchell, Sonny Abacha, so that there's transparency and we know who it is. And you can't just say it's the ABC brackets, BVI, close brackets, business. Next question. We have uh, a question here. Can you introduce yourself? Hi. Sorry, just for the people online so they yeah. can hear. Hi, I'm Dan. I'm a master's student in international relations here at Oxford. Um, I have a quick question. Thank you for your fantastic remarks and all the work you do. Um, a quick question to Mr. Andrew Mitchell, but please feel free to comment as well. Just picking on the up on the terminology you use, um, and I, I've noticed words like villain, uh, goodie, baddie. Um, I'm quite fascinated by kind of the dichotomous you know, terms you've used, and I wanted maybe to pick up on that and say, you know, is, is there an intention to, to try and just change the public discourse around that? We've heard from Prof how kleptocrat has suddenly become a very much used word in the past few months. And, you know, what more could we be doing to change the public discourse to bring awareness around around this particularly pressing issue? So 
all I'm trying to do is to use a neutral word that is not <laughs> is not capable is not capable of being parsed. So I'm talking about baddies and goodies, and I'm in, I'm inviting you to assume that the technical term is correct uh, because I think I think that makes it easier to you know to to you know go down go down uh, th th this this route in a way that is reasonably easy to comprehend. Um, other questions, uh, Professor Chris Adam there. Thank you, and uh, thank you very much for the, the presentation and the discussion. I think it's great. Um, I want to take you back to this issue about transparency and accountability and ask for your reflections on uh, whether you feel that affected uh, voluntary mechanisms such as the EITI, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, have proven effective you're talking about the need to put in place better mechanisms to to drive both transparency and accountability and this is now what nearly 20 years old it was a, a blair government initiative it was taken on i think with a fair degree of uh, enthusiasm uh, by the conservative government that followed um and i'm just interested in your reflections on taking stock is this is this a model that that helps us is it a model that has uh, run its course are there lessons to be learned from the successes and or failures of EITI to hold parties to a higher level of transparency and accountability in uh, illicit transactions? Um, first of all, uh, when I first went to see the OECD in, God, 2010, 12, round about then, they'd been working on this since uh, 1980. You know, it's crazy how long it takes to... So that's the first observation. It's not It's not even as recent as you said. The second is that, um, uh, that transparency only works if all the other bits are in place. So, you know, the quality of the data, I mean, it's just potty. Company's house is, is just completely so full of terrible, terrible data. It's not worth, which is why we need the reforms to that. So you've got to, you've got to keep revisiting these things. And then that data has to be used. Um, and that means your enforcement agencies have to use it. You have to have accountability to the public through Parliament and through all of you doing work around it. All those, that's why I talk about these, always talk about these four pillars, which I think are, are a way of, of, of looking at it. So I think transparency is a key ingredient, but it has failed us to date because actually, uh, uh, you know, money laundering, dirty money has grown during the period that we've had it. And uh, ironically, I would say Cameron and Osborne sort of got it. And I think if they'd been around for longer, we'd have made much greater progress. But they then disappeared. Uh, Theresa May came in, obsessed with Brexit, didn't have, I, didn't, I think she just generally, genuinely didn't have a space to think about anything else. And I don't think uh, honesty and transparency is top of Boris Johnson's agenda. <laughs> Margaret, so you've been specifically beneficial ownership was a priority late in the Cameron. Yeah. Uh, I think he, I think they completely got it. I think yeah. they really did get it. You know, I mean, when we first sort of light on it, they were they were they were there with us. In whether there was always the ambivalence with the powerful financial the enablers, they've always been very powerful. But they just got it. So, so look, the EITI is absolutely brilliant. This is the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative, and, and what it says is, if you are a poor country and you have resources, that you, first of all. Uh, an unscrupulous international uh, business or company that comes in and knows the value of those those resources and the country doesn't know them, 
you have you have uh, unequal transparency there. So so the EITI says you must you must be completely open about the value, and then it talks about the cost of exploitation, who whether you know it's the people digging the stuff out of the ground who make the profit, or the country which is the host to that asset makes a profit, and what happens to it, and then it uh, extractive. Industry transparency means also that you try to see that the profit that goes to the country actually goes through to public services. I mean, that in a nutshell is what the EITI uh, pro promotes, and it, it takes money off businesses who think as part of their ESG and a part of their social responsibility, they should do it. Absolutely brilliant, and works quite well. My uh, predecessor, Claire Short, a politician of totally different color to me, but but uh, on this issue, we are absolutely one. She ran it and ran it very well, lived on a plane for three years, really, um, and driving these important points in places where it matters. A, a really good example of how you even up the odds in the area we're talking about. Thank you, Andrew. And Clara Boyer has a question from our online audience. Uh, so Anne Pitcher has asked, few policymakers and academics frame the issue of capital flight and IFF as a violation of human rights, though clearly there are all kinds of human rights Sorry, abuses. Clara, we can't hear very well. Sorry. Okay, sorry. Uh, few policymakers and academics frame the issue of capital flight and IFF as a violation of human rights. Though clearly there are all kinds of human rights abuses being committed. Would framing the issue in this way be a means of pursuing more trans and cross-national solutions to the problem? Would, would what be a way what could human rights phrasing in it. human rights context? So that's Magnitsky. I mean, that's what Magnitsky, and Magnitsky does that. And I think if you had Bill Browder here, he'd say, every time I put a case to any of the enforcement authorities, it goes into a big black hole. But I mean, it's, you know, clearly if you can link human rights to uh, illicit wealth, this is a, a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And actually it's even worse because with Bill Browder and Magnitsky, he's got a file of, he's written to eight British law enforcement agencies to say, here is an issue involving this person and this money, will you investigate? And all eight of them have come back and said, uh, no, it's not for us, it's for someone else. And it's, um, it's part of what Margaret was saying about the ineffectiveness of the regulatory and enforcement structure which exists in Britain and why I'm beginning to think that the, we need more academic work on whether the takeover panel model might be a better way of, of, uh, of you know, putting some red blood corpuscles into this. Thank you, Andrew. We're getting to the to the end of our of our. Uh, we we have a question here from Tina Prelich. If we can, we can still accommodate accommodate one. Thank you. Um, hello, I'm Tena Prelitz. I'm a research associate here at uh, the Department of Politics and International Relations. Thank you very much for the fascinating panel. So we heard uh, uh, very rightly about calls for reform and empowerment of the companies house uh, right. system. Uh, reform of companies. Sorry, uh, yeah, uh, we heard from, from Andrew about uh, how important it is to basically empower companies house so that it's not just a library but it actually provides an effective uh, check to for the system. I was wondering uh, whether uh, the Charity Commission is also part of these, uh, uh, the, charity. the Charity Commission um, is also part of these discussions and if not why not so i wanted to invite comments from margaret uh, on how exactly this process works because from the perspective of us researchers working on these topics it's not very effective at all so let me just share one example um so there was a multi-million dollar donation coming from a kleptocracy 
uh, on, on whose board of this uh, charity, there was a very clear DPEP, couldn't be more clear. Um, and uh, there was no information on the Charity Commission's website about, uh, um, about the financials or anything about this company. We contacted it and we got uh, something in response. We got the documents that said financial report zero pounds <laughs> for the same years when a 10 million pounds donation was made very, very publicly. So it appears that this might also be a library rather than, you know, an effective system uh, providing checks and balances. So thoughts about how it works now and what would be uh, necessary to do to empower it. I think you immediately got a reaction here when the words charity commission were uttered. Both speakers somehow jumped forward, but Margaret very briefly. In that well, we, uh, when I chaired the Public Accounts Committee, we looked at the charity commission and it's effectiveness or otherwise in, in, in regulating the charity sector. Uh, and um, again, they too have been starved of resources. So, you you know, they haven't got the cap capability and capacity to do it. And they too are very much a library that just sort of takes in the information and uh, doesn't look at it intelligently or even check that it's accurate. Um, and uh, they too fail to work with other regulatory bodies. So, you know, they should have a relationship with HMRC, for example, which is quite a critical relationship uh, beyond where the where the donations come from. And they just, you know, we came across terrible examples of where they just didn't talk to each other and therefore uh, charities were being used for um, to bring in illicit wealth. I mean, they were bringing you really being used to to, for, for, to, launder, to launder money. Mm. Uh, so, uh, but there is a new chairman whom I'm going to meet. I don't know if Andrew's met him yet, but he's written to me, so I'm going to meet him. So we'll see whether he can make a difference. Uh, but, uh, they don't, they, they're not a good regulator either. Are you looking forward to meeting the new chairman? <laughs> I'm com I, I can't immediately think who, who I they are. Name, but but, me. I mean, I think... <laughs> I think the answer, the answer is the Charity Commission has a whole series of its own problems, but it does do more investigation. The company's house doesn't do any investigation really at all. Thank you, and we're, we're getting to the end of our session. I have a, a final question for both speakers um, to bring the question closer to us here at the University. Be, the, the Oxford Martin School is a very special venue in the university, but also uh, aloof from some of the university. Uh, realities but the question I have to ask you is much of what we discussed here today had to do with illicit financial flows with money laundering and with the uh, metropolitan uh, service providers that uh, that do the, these that facilitate this process but at the end of that spectrum after the money has been laundered and rendered legitimate there's a process of reputation laundering um, which is embodied in many forms. I mentioned earlier philanthropy to museums, cultural institutions, but also knowledge production institutions and universities obviously loom large. Um, until 15 years ago, they this would have loomed much larger in the US context than in the UK context. But in recent years, this has become a question that we as academics also have to tackle, yeah. as it were, at the end of that spectrum that you've been discussing throughout this event. You're looking at us from the outside. You're looking at us uh, from from Westminster. Um, what thoughts do you have about that that dimension in the cultural and education <laughs> sectors? I think there is a real. I think academic academia has to think very carefully. 
uh, and we know actually we know it you know it goes into the school sector there are a lot of schools that are accepting illicit finance uh, it goes it goes into the arts you know it's uh, uh, it's all over uh, as they try and actually as a lot of this the the purveyors of illicit finance try and get credibility and influence goes into our football clubs uh, you know, it goes all over the place. So I think I think the university sector has got to think hard. You've got to think hard. Uh, you have a moral duty, and academic freedom ought to be something that you hold dear. And uh, my experience has not been an easy one. So, so uh, uh, my old college at Cambridge, where I'm a fellow, um, uh, has taken money from Chinese private sector interests and has got into Charles Moore writes about it every week in the spectator and it's sort of got a life of its own now and um, the college has never concealed anything really so I think it's all a bit unfair but the answer to your question seems to me to be again once again transparency and openness yeah. and uh, being a Tory I want to impose that judgment on the on the educational entity receiving the money that it should be open and they must then decide whether they're happy to defend it to all their different uh, stakeholders and that seems to me that's the way to handle it can i just end with one story which i think just brings together the complexity of all of this it's my favorite story on this on this uh, thing and i was told about uh, a very senior uh, american uh, expert in tackling corruption who was persuaded to come and speak to the most senior people in Afghanistan. Uh, this is obviously before the Taliban uh, took over. Um, and he was persuaded to go because he was told that all the people there who were law enforcers would be there. And they wanted him to come and give a lecture to them on how to tackle corruption. And he, he agreed to do it, no fee, flew to Afghanistan, went to Kabul, magnificent theater, with all these people there who turned up to hear him tell them how to tackle corruption. And as he was delivering his talk, he looked down the front row and he realized almost everyone had a large Rolex watch. And he looked around and saw at what point they were taking notes about what he was saying. And suddenly to his horror, he realized that he'd flown halfway around the world to brief the people on what they had to combat and get round from those who were enforcing uh, law and order and anti-corruption. And I think it's a, I think it's such an interesting story. It shows you how really difficult and complex all this stuff is. Margaret Hodge, Andrew Mitchell, thanks so much for this brilliant event. Please join me in thanking our speakers.